Hi everybody and welcome to Marketplace Jungle, where we explore the world of marketplaces beyond Amazon. Brought to you by eChameleon, I'm your host, Jesse Ragg. Today's guest is Andrew Steele, company director at Charles Bentley, who have been manufacturing products for six generations. Charles Bentley started off by manufacturing brooms and brushes in the 1860s, enabling the biggest names in the UK to offer private label products across multiple ranges. In the early 2000s, they began exploring the possibilities of D2C and e-commerce and managed to succeed here without losing their B2B customers. They've now been selling on marketplaces for over 18 years and are regularly adding new non-Amazon channels to their portfolio. In this episode, expect to learn how Andrew evaluates which new marketplaces are worth expanding into for his business to balance the opportunities being presented with the necessary time investment to get started. Andrew's advice on picking the right technology to support your marketplace business, why Andrew is so optimistic about the e-commerce market heading into 2024, and his tip for which products will be cheaper next year, and much more. Andrew, thanks so much for joining today. Charles Bentley is, in my perspective, a really nice example of how marketplaces can be used to really revolutionize a traditional business. I'd love to hear a little bit about the history of Charles Bentley. Before we do, maybe you can tell us a little bit about yourself, how you got into e-commerce, how you started working at Charles Bentley. Yeah, so Charles Bentley, for anyone that doesn't know, is a, it's a, actually a sixth generation family business uh, owned and run by the family in Loughborough, Leicestershire in the UK. So we were established in 1860 as a brushware manufacturer, um, sweeping brooms, wooden sweeping brooms, you know, supplying kind of small independence, I guess, at the time. So yeah, quite quite a long family history. Um, I actually married Charles's daughter, so that's how I've kind of come into the into the family business. And when I started, there was no e-commerce. It was a it was a kind of a 10, 12 million pound business um, supplying wholesale and some relatively big retailers at the time as well. So it's been a, a pretty big journey over the last or well, nearly twenty years now um, since I've been in, involved with the family and the company. Charles is, I presume, not the founder from eighteen sixty. He. He is not the founder from 1860. So the business was actually started by uh, this is his great, 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 great grandfather, um, William Bentley, and and the, the um, and his son was Charles. So that's uh, you know that's how um, <laughs> it just happens. He's called Charles as well, of course. There you go. So, and so okay, so it started out as a broom manufacturer or brush manufacturer, I, I guess. So was it was it mm-hmm, yeah. B two B or was it B two C or I guess was it a, like a brick and mortar store traditionally? Or? Oh, all, all, yeah, all B two B. So it, it started it started in a in a in a sort of a two, two up two down you know, terrace house in the middle of town in Loughborough, and at the time it would have been wood, wooden you know, brush backs and stocks, and they were filling them by hand and selling them on the local market. And I guess over the years they they expanded that business. They I think they knocked the wall down of the house next door and put a machine in to sort of semi automate some of the process. And they brought a site um, in the middle of Loughborough, like a small warehouse. And then it's obviously developed from there. And yeah, we still manufacture over 2 million um, brooms and brushes in the UK every year. And we've got manufacturing facilities in the Far East as well, predominantly in Sri Lanka, which makes product for us. Um, all raw materials and, and components for us, which we then ship um, from there and, and finish the goods in the UK. Obviously, now you're far more than B2B. Before we start talking about marketplaces, maybe you can give me a bit of a breakdown of like the different areas of the business. Yeah, so I guess when, when, I, when I started business charles it really sort of accelerated i suppose sales and product development within within the uk and, and into the EU market so you know not not just sort of wooden brushes and brooms we had all manner of sort of cleaning products that we were sourcing in the far east and supplying retailers in both the uk and europe so when i kind of joined with just one business at, i think at tesco sainsbury's well, tesco sainsbury's and asda within about 18 months producing 
plastic brushware and cleaning products as white label for them. So we were, you know, we were the brand behind the brand. And my background from from sort of university was was um, was business and marketing, and wasn't a marketing department at the time. And that of you know the sales manager Charles sort of forging the business forward. Um, yeah, and that was my kind of in at that time in 2004 when I joined the business um, and into 20, 20, uh, 2005. And I think really the opportunity and certainly Charles saw the opportunity that, you know, the Internet was a thing. I, I actually wrote my dissertation on how the Internet would affect marketing strategies and SMEs, which was quite poignant and quite relevant at the time. Um, and you know, we'd sold some products on eBay and I kind of hit it off with him straight away. You know, we really sort of gelled, you know, pretty sort of entrepreneurial types. And, you know, I took some of those products and, and sold that on, on eBay at the end of 2004 um, and into 2005. And, and then it became a direct to consumer thing, right? Which the business wasn't used to, but Charles really understood that, you know, making white label product for, for, for people wasn't really going to be the best thing longer term for the business. You know, we hadn't forged a brand. You know, we were known as a brand behind the brand in the in the in the the wholesale and the trade market, but we know we had no sort of brand visibility for the consumer. For the, for the consumer, and rightly or wrongly, we actually when we launched, I suppose our official um, you know trading ads, we actually traded as buy direct for you because we were a bit unhappy about probably treading on the toes of some of these people that we were producing product for, right? So, you know, we we didn't particularly want to tread on Tesco's toe by selling direct, knowing that they had a, a direct offer in in store at the time. So. The business really evolved um, to kind of where it is today to a transition from, you know, that buy direct view business, our brush manufacturing business. And we, we really recognized that we needed one brand, one voice, one marketing strategy, you know, one product alignment. So you see a very different charlesbentley.com and sort of, you know, consumer product today than you did, you know, even five or six years ago, where we were still trading as buy direct view. And it was very much, you know, buying products, you know, trading products versus kind of a, a unified commercial strategy. Um, across both sides of our business. So you, you used the word SME before. Can I ask, where do you guys sit now? Obviously, you don't have to go too much into the details, but what's your sort of approx- revenue across the company as, as a whole? Yeah, so it's, it's around 30 million at the moment. We had the, the pandemic high, which I'm sure we'll touch on um, l- later in the in the discussion today and, and how we cope with that and the challenges that presented and, and to some extent still presents the business and, and businesses in the UK right now. But that's the you know the, the, the turnover of the business. And about a third of that, just under a third of that is, is from online. During the pandemic time, it was about 50-50 split. So of the online, how much of that is coming from charlesbentley.com and how much of that comes from marketplaces? Yeah, so charlesbentley.com represents about 20% of our online sales. We'd probably like it to be a little bit more, but you know, ultimately, I always feel that you know, we can't, you can't always dictate where a consumer wants to buy. We just want to be there, right? I had a you know, dinner years ago with a, with a buyer at a, a major supermarket. I said, hey, what's a brand? Yeah, what, what do you constitute a brand? And they said, a brand is everywhere, right? So you know, I kind of felt that certainly for online, that's where we wanted to be. Um, so we've kind of forged there. You know, the marketplace, not just the marketplace path, but the path across, you know, many, many retailers who are um, aspiring to have a marketplace or certainly an extended product selection. They're not buying themselves. So, you know, mine and the business's vision really is we, we kind of have to be everywhere with the products, which obviously gives plenty of complexities along the way. So 20% of that 50% comes from marketplaces. What does the 20% look like? How is how is that split across which channels? So this this yeah the split the split at the moment. If I if I uh, so we if we take the online turnover and we say about twenty percent of our sales are coming from charlesbentley.com, and then around forty percent of sales are coming from marketplace traditional marketplaces. So your eBay's, Amazon's, Manamano, Frugo, Onbuy in the UK. 
and the remaining 40 at the moment is coming from what we call DSV. So those are the retail partnerships we have supplying Charles Bentley products on, on those channels. And, and some of those are kind of transitioning to marketplaces. And we'll obviously discuss those you know, today. I'm, I'm happy to share the, the things that I can share um, that I'm not under a, an NDA or a contract for. So this is then people that are purchasing your products, white label, and also then selling effectively the same product under a different brand or under their own brand on marketplaces. Yeah. So so much of the white labeling is starting to d- disappear, Jesse, because really the business recognized that, you know, we it's all well and good trying to chase making people making product for other people but in reality we feel that we have you know the strength of our brand and our name and and the you know, the, the sort of the fam- family ethos that we put behind charles bentley so there's not a huge amount of white labeling but because we're flexible as a manufacturer we can be quite bespoke with things so you know we can you know we can put different barcodes or slightly different labels or, or things on on people's brushes and brooms certainly when we're manufacturing you know and we can do tweaks to things um for for, for exclusivity for some of our customers when we're selling you know garden furniture outdoor living um you know product we're, we're obviously manufacturing in our facilities across asia as well so you know, we're quite quite flexible as a business. I think about that a little bit in the sense of like when marketplaces get built on AWS, you know, in the sense that Amazon just sort of acknowledges that there will be other marketplaces, but if they can get built on AWS, then they can sort of profit from it in, in another way, even if they're potentially going to lose a little bit of market share occasionally. Yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, and, and actually, you know, some, some people, it can be, it used to be a bit of a taboo having a D2C site yourself. And it's only really in the last, what, three or four years that D2C has become a thing that, that, that brands are, uh, you know, should be aspiring and, and um, and learning about and you know we've been doing d2c um the first biodirect site was built in god it would have been 2006 or 2007 so we kind of understood e-commerce retailing and the the challenges it can it can cause and certainly around pricing consistency of the market you know we understood and we understood what the pain points that people might have maybe before they started thinking that might need a marketplace um and i guess over the last certainly three to four years there's been a exponential growth in I suppose non-marketplace channels wanting to become either a marketplace or having an extended offer, um, and obviously the complexities in their businesses to try and encompass technology and, and changing their tech stack to be able to cope with it from their traditional, you know, store retailing business that then became a, a potential to sell it online. So there's certainly, a, in my mind, a, a transitional shift, um, and and, and yeah, you know, that will just keep you know keep moving forward as obviously competition um, dictates that. Um, you know, you, you can't buy everything yourself and people want to extend their ranges. So we're seeing a, a huge sort of growth and expansion in the channels and the discussions that we're having with retailers at the moment about how, you know, how we may help them, you know, with, with home and garden product to extend their ranges um, so they don't have to do it all themselves. So you guys were quite ahead of the curve back then. You know, you you were definitely among the first movers going into that D2C range. And I can imagine there must have been a lot of discussion around, as you said, do you want to step on the toes of your biggest customers by effectively yeah. cutting them yeah. out in certain markets? How did it actually pan out? Did you lose any big customers? Did you piss anyone off? Oh, sure. Well, I mean, the, the first one really and it was, and I said j- just a moment ago that, you know, we, we probably re- leaned on some of the relationships we had in store because we were known in store, either white label or, you know, as, as, as you know, Bentley brushware as it was at the time or Charles Bentley products. You know, we, we always had the right connections within the store sort of retailing um, in network. So, you know, we could take some of our products um, and we could have those discussions early on and, you know, the one that I said about Tesco's, I'll, I'll never forget, you know, we were selling these, you know, all sorts of products on, 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 um, on Bidirect View. I remember we were selling golf trolleys and ride mowers and all sorts of different things. Um, and I remember at the time, Charles, I remember he rung me and he said, Oh, I've been summoned to go to Tesco head office in, in Wellen. Now they want to have a discussion about this Bidirect View business. And we thought at the time, Oh, no, this is going to be, a, you know, this is going to be a bit of a challenge. What, you know, what, how's this going to pan out? And actually we got there and we had our catalogs ready and, you know, we thought we were going to get, you know, 
get get a bit of a bit of a ticking off. And at the time, the buyer manager said, "Oh, look, we're quite interested in these products to sell um, to sell online as well. You know, what can you do for us?" And it was the time where they'd you know they'd obviously poached a lot of Argos and um, people to go and do their their Tesco Direct business. So we were one of the sort of the founding sort of members of, of Tesco Direct. We did it through the commercial team. I think that was back in 2015 or 16. And then, of course, they set up the marketplace and, you know, it was invite only and, you know, you could get an aggregation through a, you know, a Limworks or a Channel Advisor or whatever. You know, and rightly or wrongly, that, that business, you know, sh- shut down for them. Um, I think it was back in 2018. So that was the first time we kind of started these conversations with with non-marketplace retailers is where could we distribute our products. And now there's, you know, there's about 12 of them that we're working with and about half a dozen more that there's conversations moving forward about how do we support them with extended ranges. Interesting. So I remember it was a few weeks ago on, on a previous episode of Marketplace Jungle, Eddie Latham mentioned that for them, when they were building the velocity audio side of their business, selling on marketplaces actually helped them to prepare for going to, or particularly Amazon, but it helped them to prepare for going to those conversations with Argos where, you know, 40% of the margin was fine because they were already spending that on all the different advertising, the commission and all the, all the rest that comes with selling on Amazon. You obviously made the opposite transition. I'm curious how your B2B business helped prepare you for that marketplace element where you obviously had more margin because there were fewer middlemen to deal with, but there were more things that you'd have to spend that money on yourselves in between. And did it end up being more or less or the same sort of profitability-wise? The easy answer is it was a completely different product mix. So, you know, brushes and brooms are expensive, as you imagine, to ship. So, you know, if you've got a 1.2 or 1.4 meter handle product, you know, that does not that does not go and get shipped particularly well. Okay, we knock those, you know, we knock them down and, and put them in half these days um, when we do on the online offer. But it was a completely different different range. So it was almost like a non-compete, Jesse. So I, I think probably if you come at it from the other way, yeah, you're right. We've come from it the other way because it was a different product proposition. You know, it was you know, barbecues, outdoor living, you know, things for the garden, things for the home. You know, and our and our, our core business was manufacturing and importing brushes and brooms and cleaning products. So it was a different proposition. And we, you know, we obviously built, uh, I suppose, a retail down model where we, you know, we took, you know, we, t- we took a retail price that was competitive in the market and we worked out the margin, you know, the margin chain accordingly down to what was applicable, moved it forward from there. So, and we still use that strategy. It gets more complex where you've got, you know, most of the marketplaces in the UK and, and Europe, they run a fairly similar commission model, you know, percent, percentage or proportion of retail. And what's quite complex in the market today when you're trying to support other retailers and, and dropship partners, as we call them, is you know what's the margin chain mix across those channels? Everyone's got a different margin chain mix or a, or a, a gross margin requirement. So that gives a level of complexity to try and pitch your products at the right level that you can kind of, as best you can, support everyone. And I guess what some of the learnings and what we're finding is there's certain retailers that are more premium, that command a, a higher ticket price, and we have to have products that are relevant for them. And of course, there's retailers that are quite happy to compete against the, you know, the Amazons of this world and, and work on a lower gross margin, which, you know, so, so we've kind of learned a lot around you know, the product development strategies and techniques to support, you know, I suppose, the right customers with the right product. Are there any key tips that came off the back of that that you think is underrated that you think other marketplace sellers should know, but maybe don't factor into their day-to-day business when they're selling on marketplaces? There's, there's, a, you know, there's a lot we've learned over the time, I, I guess. It, I mean, I think we're quite a complex business, you know, a, a manufacturer that's also, you know, an import exporter, you know, with their own, their own website selling on multiple channels. Um, 
you know, I think if, if we had our time again, yeah, we would probably looked at it in a slightly different light. I realize it's a very broad question and it's a very, it's very tough as well. Cause as you said, like every, every product range, every category, every market, every country, there's so many different levers to pull there. If you had your time again, are there things that you might have done differently that could have saved you some pain while building? Yeah. There's, there's certainly things I think I would have, I would have, if I had my time again, we probably would have been more laser focused on specific product categories. I think, you know, we were probably too broad as by direct view, you know, we, the, the, you know, we used to look at certainly look at some someone like Argos, for example, and say, "Hey, they're buying a you know a white labelled, it's a non branded product. Hey, we can go and fetch that in from the far east, and we can make a margin and sell it and offer customers a great you know great pr- product and service." Um, and I think actually, in hindsight, you know, we should have we should have focused probably on more product that was that was probably more relevant to to the business at the time, certainly within garden outdoor living. But that's probably the only change. And you know, business is pretty fluid. And I think, you know, we've been around since 1860, right? So, you know, things evolve and you, you kind of have to maneuver around where the market's going. Um, you know, and Charles has been pretty instrumental, you know, um, you know, in that and, and certainly for me is 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 you know my sort of original business mentor, you know, is sometimes you just have to you have to follow the market. You know, and, and if we didn't, we just we, you know would would we be still just a broom and brush manufacturer? We would be, but it would be a completely different business than it is today. You said see where the market is going, which is obviously a bit of a crystal ball question. But you've been selling online places for how long now? Fifteen years. Well, yeah, it's a bit more than that. It's about eighteen years now. So that's Jurassic in marketplace. <laughs> so you mentioned obviously Tesco, for example, the Tesco marketplace closed back in there. I think it was you said that left a lot of British retailers, particularly that were doing well on there, because it was a high performing marketplace. For a lot of people, that was a big chunk of cash that disappeared from one day to the next. Yeah, it was almost seven figures for wow. us. So it, you know, it was a it was a bit of a blow. Where do you see the marketplace space evolving next? Because obviously, following COVID, anyone with any kind of a name, any kind of reasonable traffic to their website, kind of gone, oh, marketplaces, that's a thing. Yeah, we should become the marketplace. And then you've got technology like Miracle and and uh, Spriker and Marketplacer that enable that so it's a lot easier to build a marketplace but certainly here in germany recently michael is in mirapodo which was part of the auto group that got closed down it was a very similar impact for people in the toys industry as the tesco example i think looking at it from the outside it doesn't matter how much revenue you're generating when you only get to keep 15 percent of what's coming through the door you know it needs to be a, a pretty big 15 percent for it to be worth running a, a marketplace are you concerned that with all of these new marketplaces that are popping up, that some of them are going to disappear again just as quickly? Or where do you see the space going? I, th- I think over time, sometimes you can't second guess how a marketplace is going to evolve. So and I- I'll give you a great example of Monashell, who became Mano Mano. And mm-hmm. I remember at the time thinking, oh, it's another one. You know, we sell on eBay and Amazon and we've, you know, we've set the international business up. And we've got an aggregator and you know, the business is moving forward and we're developing products and, you know, what's the next time investment that you're going to have to go and, and who's the next winner? And you, you can't second guess necessarily how things are going to pan out. But, you know, I would say that you then have to, you have to take a sort of a, a fairly pr- pragmatic view on who might be a, a leader and, 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 and how much time investment do you, do you put in? And I think the aggregation really helps, you know, the partners, you know, we work with Channel Advisor and, and have done for probably more than 10 years now on aggregation and, you know, if it's a few, you know, if it's a, a, a few hours of you know pulling data files and, and API fees to the channels, then hey, why not? You know, they don't take that much time to set up. And Monashell, who became Mano Mano, ended up you know being a, a pretty significant six figure amount for us. But now that changes. You know, eBay was our biggest account. We used to do about three million quid on eBay, and now it's you know it's it's probably I don't know, you know half a million quid a year or something because obviously there's 
competition cannibalization of those channels you know mana mana would have taken some of that that traffic and now i, I kind of feel that you know and, and we sell on um we sell on on buy example and you know you can see that business sort of moving forward so you kind of have to I kind of feel like you have to be there you don't necessarily know how it's going to pan out but if you're not there you, you won't know you know there's some channels um you know i suppose non-marketplace channels that i know will become marketplaces as well you know they're not in the public domain yet but there's people that we work with that they will be a marketplace next year and how does that pan out you know and it, it changes dynamic because when you do become a marketplace from a i suppose a standard you know commercial contract or a dropship business if they open it up then it can cannibalize yourselves again so i kind of always think charles bentley and the business has to be forward thinking you know where's the next place where's the next retailer you know what's the next product um you know it's all those kind of complexities um that, that i work with within, within my role um so yeah, it's, it's ever evolving. You have to be there and you, you so, so saying like, you know, back in the right horse, but you know, you've got to back a lot of horses and then you'll work out the ones that are probably going to do the best. I guess if you, uh, if you put something on every horse, you're probably going to win. It's <laughs> to some to some extent, and it's just trying to take the time element, you know. I mean, we're working at the moment. There's we've got five onboardings over the spring and summer for you know for for, for multiple other channels that are most of them are miracle actually the miracle channels, and some of those are miracle marketplace, and some of them are miracle um, uh, miracle um, commercial contract you know, with a with a wholesale price. So again, it's you know just trying to work with the um, you know the relationship that, and the, and the partners um, that we have. Um, yeah, and it's definitely not a case of, you know, you just plunk these products on the channel anymore and hope for the best. You know, the, the complexity over the years has become, it's become sponsored ads. It's become promotional strategies, pricing strategies. Um, you know, what can you do with whom and when? And, you know, if you look at our spreadsheet data file of our promotional calendar, you know, it's, you know, it's, it's really quite complex. Um, you know, and trying to bring in product from the Far East during supply chain, you know, challenges was obviously difficult to, um, to navigate that around. So, um, it's, um, yeah, it's ever evolving, Jesse. I think, um, and there'll be more players out there. How big is the team that you've got working with you on this? So we've got a marketing director in the business. We've got a number of buying uh, people involved in buying and product development that look after our PIM data, so the product data. We've got photographer. You know, we've got content, but never enough. Never enough. You know, probably one of our day to day you know challenges. We want to do all these different things. How quickly can we do them with the the confines of the team that we have? So you know, we have opportunities to outsource. We use some partners in the UK to help us with some of the marketplace kind of management, sort of data feed side. Who we've worked with for for a number of years. So that's a that's a really valid point. I want to come back to what you mentioned before about a channel aggregation. For the listeners, I've promised from the beginning that this shouldn't be, this podcast is really designed to be educational. I can't hide the fact that Ecomelia play in that same space as Channel Advisor, but it's a very different, I'd say it's a different market. Obviously, we've not been on the market for anywhere near as long, but we come from the background where we used to work with Channel Advisor. So it's we're a bit of an interesting perspective, but I really want to think about the aggregator space or the integrators because there's so many options out there. There's so many tools which offer APIs to marketplaces, which offer varying degrees of product and order management functionalities. I know obviously you guys have built a lot of stuff in-house as well. Now, you've been with Channel Advisor for a while. So obviously it's very ingrained into your systems. But if we were to look at this through a lens where you had to start again tomorrow, let's say Channel Advisor sends you an email tomorrow and they want to put your price up 50% or whatever it might be. If you're looking at selling on marketplaces, what are some of the things that would help you decide what the best tool is to help you do that? Like, how are you going to pick this? Obviously, price is a factor, but it shouldn't, it's probably an area where you shouldn't skimp. What thought process go through your head? Yeah, I mean, if, yeah, again, if I, if I was starting again, it, you know, the questions I'd be asking were, you know, looking at three to five years out where, 
where I know a number of these dropship partners are going to become marketplaces. You know, the complexity we have is we have the aggregator that is marketplace specific, and then we've built a bridge ourselves to the partners. So, you know, we've built a PIM, we've got a data exchange, we can bring in orders, you know, in flat file, you know, we can bring them through an API, you know, we can do EDI, you know, we work with virtual stock and a whole load of them. And I mean, God, you know, <laughs> you know, if we had the time and the investment, we could just build ourselves, you know, our own market, you know, our own aggregator to all of these and gone and sold it, <laughs> which, which did go through my mind. Um, you know, a, a while ago, and we have a you know, we have best cost routing and built in as well for parcel management. So you know, when those orders come in from you know almost twenty channels now, including the you know, the channel advisory aggregated marketplaces and the DSVs, you know we suck those orders in, and you know it tells us where to ship it and whom and what's the best cost. And there's a bunch of attributes that we can you know, we can tag. So obviously the, the complexities of that you know and, and the financing of that would, would would take the business on a different journey, which is why we've not gone down that route, but. I'd be asking you in the aggregator, you know, what conversations and relationships they've got with, you know, other retailers that that, that may become marketplaces or have a, a distribution agreement. Because I think, you know, the the time, the speed, the complexity, you know, are things within our business we've had to work around because those tools haven't been there. Although I know, you know, that there's others out there that are, that are, that are having those sort of conversations now. But yeah, we, we have a pretty pretty good good deal with Channel Advisor being one of their, if not their oldest UK account at the moment. How much of an issue for you is it dealing with the product data side of things? Like what does that process look like? Who does what? How much is done at the ERP level? How much is done from the marketing team? Yeah, so so obviously when we bring new new products from our you know, our, par- our partners in the, in the Far East generally or, or you know, Europe or even the UK, you know, we we obviously get a, a new line form flat file. You know, we get the data filled in, you know, product dimensions, weights, features, benefits, you know, all the content sort of bits um, from a manufacturing perspective. And then obviously when you know, we, we bring that into our own PIM system, so our product information manager, and then our marketing team embellish that data to make it you know, SEO friendly, you know, commercially astute. Um, and then we suck it into um, an aggregator, or we push it out via a flat file, or um, you know, or an Excel document to some of the, the not, um, some of the marketplaces through through the aggregator, or from um, a flat file to um, you know a, 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 an online retailer. So you know, that's how we kind of get the data um, embellished. I think you know, some of the data in our system, you know, I probably wrote you know m- many many years ago, and some of the complexities around how do you get the data out and um, and you know, rehash it, rephrase it, modernize it. Um, and you know, there's there's obviously tools out there, you know, through AI, you know, that we we're we're exploring and using, and others probably will be as well to to, to make that data um, cleaner, crisper. But yeah, the aggregation I think I think helps, but it's not always a, it's not always it's not always a fail safe. Sometimes we'll spot things and we think, well, why is that not pushed through? Or maybe you've updated some images and the PIM's gone to the aggregator, the aggregator partner sent it to the marketplace, and the marketplace haven't updated it. So, you know. Figuring out where in the there's, there's still added yeah there's still added complexities and you're still auditing it you know sometimes I looked at a, looked at one of our you know we we shot our gas barbecues last week and you know the data hadn't you know the image and the content hadn't updated properly um so it, there's always things that you still have to keep an eye on so how many products do you have across the board so at the moment online there's about 800 products um, across home and garden and you know and you know, it's a relatively tight range. Jesse, and as I said over the years, you know, you, you kind of have a feel for what's working for you, and that's why I say about the involvement. You know, there's, there's, you know, we've been heavily into garden outdoor living and garden furniture, which you know we had a you know, amazing success over the pandemic, and you know the sales clearly have fallen away. And if you put in you know garden furniture in Google Trends, you know you'll see the, the, the decline. So you have to go and find what's the next thing you know, consumers are looking for, and yeah, you know, and it has to be within obviously the, the the sector we're in, within home and garden. So 
you know, I've been spent some time uh, the week before last in China, um, first time back after obviously the lockdowns, you know, close to four years. And, you, and you're trying to find the next, you know, what's the next thing that maybe you've missed or um, that's relevant to the product category, but ultimately what's relevant to customers and, and what customers need during a, you know, a, a post pandemic um, you know, position that we're in at the moment. The crystal ball time. Have you, do you know what that next thing is? <laughs> um, yeah, there, there's there's certainly categories and ranges. I think that that that, that spread us, um, you know, across the season. So we're working on ranges at the moment that support kind of autumn, winter, and and very early sort of sp- spring sales. You know, the biz- our business is 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 probably too heavily reliant in garden outdoor living, if I'm honest. Which obviously peak sales are from March to you know, really August, and you know we we kind of we're looking to kind of flatten the curve a bit. So there's there's plenty of things we're working on for the winter that you know help support customers for the the things that they're going to want and. You know, for all those listeners, you know, we, we, that, that, that are not particularly um, sort of au fait with far resourcing. You know, we've got products that are coming into the warehouse now that are fifty percent cheaper than they were six months ago, and really that's driven by freight and improvement to FX. So I think you're going to see some quite aggressive pricing into 2024, which obviously is going to help with the deflation in certain products. I'll give you one: kitchen bins. So if you buy kitchen bins in China now, they're going to be fifty percent cheaper than they were last year. Wow. Okay. And purely because of the freight. Interesting. So we used to pay highs of all fourteen, fifteen thousand dollars per forty foot high Q container. So the actual the value of the freight was as much as the commodity product that you brought. Whereas that's not you know, gone back to twelve, thirteen hundred dollars now. So you're going to see quite a quite a nice saving. And it's a competitive market, right? So you know retailers have to average down as to what the markets, you know, what the market is is um, expecting and requiring. Would you ever consider expanding beyond home and garden? I mean, we're coming back to that laser focus, right? But you've got a good brand in the same sense that a good brand that can become a marketplace, why not also leverage it into, you know, it's not a far stretch to start offering perhaps some sports goods, maybe trampolines, and then from trampolines into yoga, and then from yoga into, you know, it's kind of a, at what point is it a slippery slope? It's funny, funny, Jesse, we actually do sell trampolines. So really the Charles Bentley brand is around, you know, is around everything you would have within the home and garden. So, you know, we have a garden play category that has, you know, has football goals and basketball and table tennis and you know, things that people you know, would, would enjoy, um, obviously enjoy within the house. And there's ranges that, you know, potentially are just too far away. Um, you know, we've done fitness items before, but, you know, really you have the investment is, is, is huge and we're not, you know, we're not experts and we can't be experts in everything. So, you know, at the moment it's a real laser focus on, on, you know, home, you know, home furnishings and, and garden items to enjoy within the home. So, you know, we, we, you know, we could go into other markets and other areas, but I think at the moment it wouldn't be right for the business. It wouldn't be right for our customers either. But yeah, there's always an eye on what the next thing could be. That takes um, a lot of discipline. So yeah, and I think it takes a huge amount of discipline. I mean, we, rightly or wrongly, you know, we, over the years we've been a business that probably says yes, and then we worked out how to do it. You know, if we're not sure, and um, you know, Charles, you know, he's he's always on the lookout for the next thing. Um, you know, we make some products for um, for some Dragons Den backers, so we make. Um, and have a license to supply grip it a marksman product which is a wall fixing and a um, a little sort of chalk spray um paint canister that sort of flicks chalk into a hole and that's where you can put your your pilot hole when you're drilling something so you know there's other investments that that, that we've made and, and some licenses we've got um you know and it all it was all within kind of the, the remit of home and garden it's fine um and it's you know sometimes we just have to flex the resources around the opportunity um as, as they come up and, and when they come up 
we get approached quite a lot from people to make product for them or can you help us with that um you know so we have to weed out the things that we think are relevant for you know for the business and obviously our customers as well it's crazy just how many facets there are to the business you know you guys are at the from the consumer or from from our side it's very easy to look at you and say yes it's another e-commerce seller yeah, yeah. I mean, we're not just, uh, I mean, some e-commerce sellers, they're pure play, you know, all they do is they buy products in the Far East and they, you know, they, 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 you know, they, they, they put their name on it and they've got the right colorways. And, and I, I think actually as much as you can look at the Charles Bentley business and brand as it can be quite com- com- complicated, that's really helped us because, you know, it, where, where one area of the business, so garden furniture, as we know, is, is, you know, has been in the decline for the last kind of two years post pandemic high. You know, actually, the business has been supported um, because we sell product to store and we sell lower value product. You know, we've got about 450 live accounts order from us every year. Um, and there's plenty of people that have been in home and garden that have fallen by the wayside. You know, the made.coms have gone bust and, you know, the Cox and Cox is the garden trading and there's obviously plenty others. So as much as we're complex, you know, it, it does kind of help us and we can kind of flex where we think, you know, the market might be going or where we need to put our resources. Lots of different levers that you can pull yeah, at any yeah. time. Yeah, yeah. So focusing on the marketplace side, do you have any tips for somebody that is kind of that they're stuck on Amazon? They're they're making a you know upwards of eighty percent of their revenue is coming from Amazon, and they're trying to figure out how they can diversify into new marketplaces, specifically from a time investment. Because obviously, there's sort of it's it's kind of a long tail, right? You, you're going to have potentially an endless list of marketplaces that you could sell on. And anyone that's selling on Amazon can theoretically look at them and find at least three or four, if not 10 or 20 marketplaces that they could also sell their products on. But how do you, without investing the same amount of time as you would on Amazon, also succeed on all of those other marketplaces? Because obviously, none of them are going to be the, the next Amazon. Yeah, I mean, I think you have to look at your product mix or your product range. You know, if you're in fashion, there's you know, there's channels out there that are probably more relevant to selling on on you know on another marketplace. So I think first things, yeah, you, know, you have to de-risk yourself from Amazon. I mean, Amazon is a seller; you have to be on it, right? But it's getting more competitive. It's got more costly. You have to pay more for sponsored ads. You know, it's certainly more com- complex. Yeah, and certainly post-pandemic, I think I think it was a hundred. 45,000 more Amazon sellers or something post pandemic than was pre pandemic. So it's uber competitive. So I think you have to, you have to diversify, you know, you have to have relevant channels um, that, that your product mix requires, you know, like I said earlier, you know, you, you kind of, kind of have to spread, you have to spread yourself, you know, across as many channels as you can and then find the ones that, that are relevant, you know, it, obviously, as you say, within the most sort of cost effective manner. And I think it's worth having, Certainly worth having a you know a marketplace specialist. Um, we use a company called Rich Insights, who are kind of ex-channelizer Amazon people, and you know, so they understand the complexities and the and, and the, obviously the speed to market, and they can do it pretty competitively as well. So I think you need you know you can't do it all in house. You don't know everything. So I think you know for for not too much investment, it's worth having a, a partner to help you and guide you through. Um, but yeah, I, I think you know the, the Amazon de-risk for sure um, is one finding other channels and partners that are relevant to your products and having a, a good aggregator and to take some of the, you know, the time management and listings, content, product management and fees um, is, is, is certainly important too. Do you have a feeling for your internal time split between the individual marketplaces? If you approximately, if you were to think of a pie chart, how much of that pie chart would be spent on Amazon versus other marketplaces? Is it 50-50 or... Uh, but we probably spend a disproportionate time on on Amazon just because it you know it's still our biggest marketplace account. But you know, like I said earlier, Jesse, that in my my view, really, is customers they'll, they'll buy from their preferred channel. So as a brand, you know, yeah, 
obviously people you can, how are you going to find a product you're going to search on on google aren't you or bing um or you're going to search on amazon you know or you're going to see something on social media feed and you're going to click on it you know so you kind of have to be kind of everywhere as best as best you can um as a brand so just yeah we spend a relative amount of time on on, on amazon um but you know we have you know, we, we generally have conversations with most channels every month. You know, we're still doing you know, a small amount of business on eBay, but we you know we've had an account manager to to help guide with different you know promotional strategies and opportunities because things change. You know, we have someone at Mano Mano that we speak to every month, looking at promotions or you know how the feed's working or if there's opportunities. And I think we see, we're seeing more than that than probably ever. You know, when I first started, you, you kind of you kind of put products on a site, and that was kind of it. And kind of expected it to sell or, or not sell and if it didn't sell why didn't it sell is a content price availability um so it's, it's probably getting more i think they're putting more resource behind because it's so competitive so they're trying to and they're trying to find the best sellers and partners to work with i think as well so how much are, are you guys doing that much internationally or is it exclusively in the uk in terms of sales yeah, so the, the international sales is is really quite challenging. So we've got you know relatively high ticket, you know, heavy products. So we we found it incredibly difficult to go and service Europe competitively and economically. You know, post pandemic, our internal systems cannot really cope with some of the um, the complexities of dealing with Europe and you know really looking at looking at our business and looking at our competitors. You know that that business has fallen away, which is really quite disappointing. Um, you know, we used to do between Amazon and, and, and Manamana and eBay, Frugo as well. We did about 3 million quid pre-pandemic a year selling these products. And, you know, and, you know ever since, you know, those their sales have dried up and disappeared, unfortunately. So I hope one day that... How much of that is pre... How much of that is pandemic and how much is Brexit related? Well, it's all Brexit related. So, um, you know, we, we can't find the best mechanism, you know, to, to economically make profit selling products into Europe at the moment, um, you know, without sort of different entities and um you know and costings you know we could probably put stuff into an amazon fulfillment center and use efn you know the, the mfn the manufacturing network you know distribution network but then you'll have to pay the you know the amazon fba fee and storage fee you know we've got three hundred fifty thousand square foot of warehousing in loughborough so we don't necessarily want to go and pay additional storage fee to then hopefully get a sale so it's become ever complex and you know and, and again you know marketplace complexity you know you, you could go and put products in a mana mana warehouse or you know, uh, you know, other warehousing and, you know, then it kind of splits your stock out as well and gives you different challenges. If that marketplace is not selling, but you've got stock in their warehouse, you know, how do you repatriate the stock to then serve another warehouse? So at the moment we do it all centrally through, you know, through, you know, Loughborough in the middle of the UK and we distribute to all our partners from one site, um, which, which economically is probably helpful. You know, although you may, maybe you don't get enough, enough of an uplift, if you like, from a, from an algorithm on Amazon, if you're using a, you know, an FBA. <laughs> I mean, it's difficult, isn't it? Have you qualified for seller fulfilled prime from your warehouse? Yeah. So we use SFP, um, which, you know, really has been quite, quite beneficial. So, you know, we've been on SFP probably for five or six years, I'd imagine now. And we also use Amazon Seller Flex. So some of the bigger, bulkier, heavier items, we, we have that service as well. Are there any comparable services like that on other marketplaces that you work with? Or is that just Amazon that's helping you out there? So yeah, just, just Amazon at the moment have that type of sort of speed of service where they're using their Amazon logistics um, partners to come and collect and, and, and distribute. And, and you do see it, you know, you do see it, an, an uplift in sales across those items. Um, only this week, I think over the pandemic, they kind of you used to be able to send a 120 by 60 by 60 parcel for about four quid anywhere in the UK. 
and they switch that off pretty quickly when their volumes increased and charge you more and actually reduce the size by about half but only this week they've come back with a slightly different service offering which means we can go back to a, a higher item you know back to your, your 120 by 60 by 60 so i think that's going to give us opportunities and other vendors opportunities to send higher sort of weighted and, and voluminous goods out which i think is only going to help businesses um you know to get who are on sfp to get to get more sales volumes and that those that aren't of course you pay a slight premium don't you over the the traditional carriers probably i guess it's probably 50 percent more expensive but you know if you're going to get a 20 25 uplift because of it then it's probably worth it you know i recently had a a guest on the podcast a guy called tobias rubik from germany he was like one of the early employees of both the auto and the about you marketplaces and then went and founded hey connect which was uh or not founded, sorry, but was an early early employee at HeyConnect, which was uh, or is an agency that helps pretty much every major German fashion brand with all of the marketplace-related stuff. It's a little bit similar to what you described with Rich Insights in that it's a team of people who are experts in um, a bunch of German aggregation tools and in the German marketplaces, and they do the same thing that Rich Insights do for you guys. But Tobias is now heading up a marketplace or what is becoming a marketplace called Conox, which I'm not sure if you're familiar with, but it's like a hundred million euro a year furniture company from Germany, but it's quite high end. It's where you'd go to buy a table for five grand. Um, and they're looking at building out kind of a two prong approach to marketplaces. The first being that they want to become sort of the Zalando for the furniture industry. They want to do for the furniture industry what Zalando did for the fashion industry in terms of e-commerce. The other side of it is a service where furniture sellers can store their products in their warehouse. And these guys will then offer seller of record services and offer some products on their own marketplace if it's high-end items. Some products on sort of cheaper marketplaces like Home24 and Amazon and Kaufland and Otto. And then they will do the fulfillment, the last mile, the two-man delivery, all that sort of stuff that's necessary for furniture. I can imagine that being a a option that might solve some of those problems for, for you guys. Um, so I can definitely connect you with Tobias if you want to chat with him about that. Yeah, it's, it's that it's that kind of, you know, that, that distribution opportunity, really, that I think UK you know, UK um, accounts really are, are suffering with. You know, we've had different conversations with, with, with different people over the, you can imagine, over the last sort of two years, what's the right, what's the right way to re-enter Europe? Um, you know, we've, I kind of feel like we've got, a, we've got enough to deal with, with our current market, um, you know, post-pandemic, you know, rebalancing of stock and SKUs um, across the home and garden market, We've got six new channels that we're going to onboard over the summer for the UK, and one of them is what a, channels are those? Can I ask? Uh, so I can't tell you all of them. Okay, <laughs> but um, <laughs> but uh, but but ones at the moment are that, that I can tell you because they're in public domain. So B and Q. So we're going to launch on the B and Q marketplace um, this spring, and uh, also the range all being well. And also Debenhams Marketplace. So those are three that we've got in the summer. And then I've got another one that's at, towards the end of the spring. Sorry, towards the end of the summer. And then we've got a, a real big player who's uh, re-entering the market in Q1 next year. Nice. I'm excited to see what happens there. That's... <laughs> so, you know, there's a lot to go on. And I kind of, you know, as a business, you know, you, you, yeah, you, you have to... Yeah, you want to explore all these things. And like I said before, you know, sometimes we've said yes too much and yes, let's do this. And, but I, I think we're pretty, pretty laser focused in, you know, in where we need to be over the next 12 months. 
And I think Europe is is potentially something to, to reinvestigate for the business in 2024. It's funny because the UK marketplace space has been kind of hamstrung since Brexit. For a lot of sellers that were looking at the Europe and specifically those who were pre-Brexit, that were successful in Europe where you had C-Discount, Otto, Kaufland, Zalando or uh, Real as it used to be called. There was There's so many marketplaces here in each country that it was a real shock to the system for a lot of like multi-channel sellers who went, oh, what, we've only got th- like three, four seller marketplaces in the UK. And now, as you said, suddenly you've got kind of all of the household names are becoming a marketplace. And, you know, you've also got like Decathlon and um, honestly, there's, there's so many now. Yeah. I mean, everyone's looking for extended ranges, aren't they? And yeah, I mean, it's quite interesting. A lot of the conversations that we have with some of the, the dropship partners, the retail partners, non-marketplaces are around, you know, they've tried to go and buy all the product themselves. And then they've gone to sort of the, the marketplace model, but they've gone to a vendor model where, you know, we can drop ship product to them. And then they've then they've got rid of that and they've gone, oh, we can do it all ourselves. And then, you know, so it's it's like a push-pull constantly. Um, so a lot of the relationships at the moment, certainly within, within Garden are, we've tried to do it ourselves. Um, we've spent millions and millions of miles in inventory. It's not sold. We've had our fingers burnt. Um, let's go back to the dropship model where we can rely on partners and we can make a, a margin contribution and we just do the customer service and list the product, right? So, you know, it, it does push and pull um, depending on, um, I suppose, consumer sentiment and where some of the, you know, some of the buy managers kind of feel that that, that, that our brand or, or other brands like us could, could fit within that channel. So it's, it's just evolved constantly. You know, you've just got to be ears to the ground, seeing what's going on, maneuvering your business around um, you know, to, to fit where the market may need. Really exciting. You've, you've done an incredible job. It's no wonder that, that Charles is happy to have you as a son-in-law because um, <laughs> it, it sounds like you've done a really good job of picking up and running with it. Well, it makes an interesting Sunday dinner, doesn't it? You know, where we all go around for you know the, the Sunday barbecue on the Bentley barbecue under the Bentley umbrella with the Bentley garden furniture and brushware outside. And we, you know, we, we, we talk about the business and What's the, where does the future to, to go and how we support ultimately how do we support our customers better and what we could do better so it's, it's never a dull moment and it's a you know it's a it's a it's a you know it's i suppose it's in the blood and it's ingrained with us so it's it, it doesn't ever really feel like a job it's it's you know just what we do you have to get in touch with james watt from Brewdog and see if you can get a bentley beer collaboration going to drink on that bent it's quite funny we actually have a uh, we actually we have a brewer opposite us um um, obviously our manufacturing manufacturing site called charmwood brewery so they, they cropped up a couple of years ago so we've been we've been asking them to make the brush makers brew uh, for a while <laughs> so that's really cool i it's funny because i grew up i grew up in a pub in like a little village pub my parents had a very good relationship with our local brewery and they were doing they would do local brews all the time but like they did a, they did a brew for my dad's 50th and you know they it's all i love that i love the that's one part of British culture I really miss. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So yeah, we, we like to kind of collaborate you know, locally, and as a, as a family, we're, you know, we're involved in sort of different sort of charities and projects. And um, I'm a cyclist, so I, I go and do things for you know, charity fundraising. And so yeah, there's yeah, we, we like that kind of you know, those sort of inherent family values and, and, and how we spread that, I guess, through the, the, the local community. Nice, and, and I think you see that in the business as well. That's it, it does shine through. Is there anything else that you would? like to share with our audience before we call it a day or no i think so i think i think yeah the underlining message really is you know the, the market is volatile isn't it you know you know consumer sentiment is, is is obviously under a lot of pressure for for um you know for all the well-documented reasons and I, I think really just you know advice to people that 
you know, you have to you have to look where the market's going, you know, not just on your products, but you know, on your channel, and be really sort of laser focused on, on you know on what your what your you know your, your USB is and um, you know what your customers are doing, what they're asking for, listening to them, re, you know, reviewing feedback. The beauty of online business is people tell you what's good and what's bad, right? So you know we spend a lot of time looking at our Trustpilot and our Amazon scores and how do we make product better. So I think consumers, you know, if they're going to spend money, you know, they'll still spend money in a in a downturn. Yeah, but they'll spend it well. So, and they'll spend it with the, the businesses that you know, can offer them the best service, quality, value. So, you know, it's. I think it's going to be another tough sort of twelve, eighteen months. But you know, I can see that there's going to be improvements into into next year. Exciting! I wish I wish we all had access to those insights. But I'm I'm looking forward to seeing where the space <laughs> where the space goes. We'll get you back on in twelve months' time, and you can tell us all the things you couldn't tell us now. Well, let's do that then, Jesse. Hey. <laughs> Excellent. Andrew, thanks so much for taking the time. It's really, really, really good having you on. Cheers, Jesse. Thanks again for taking the time out of your day to listen in to Marketplace Jungle. I really hope you learned something out of the conversation with Andrew and are able to take away some tips that you can apply to your own e-commerce business. And I look forward to hearing any feedback you've got on the episode. If you're interested in selling on any of the marketplaces Andrew mentioned or are interested in learning more about marketplace integrations in general, feel free to reach out to me to find out how eChameleon can help you. I'll see you next time.